The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Silicon Valley Bank might not have been a household name until a few weeks ago, but it quickly became one after its stability unraveled in early March. On March 8th, Silicon Valley Bank announced that it quickly needed to raise $2.2 billion. And by March 10th, the FDIC announced the bank's closure, marking the second largest U.S. bank failure in history. And if the speed with which the failure happened gave you whiplash, you're not the only one. It's a testament to the fast-paced digital age we live in. And if you're like me, it was also a cause for great anxiety, even though I have no connection to Silicon Valley Bank. We had fears that the economy as a whole was on a precipice. My guest today experienced the bank failure both as an entrepreneur who did her banking there and as someone with a keen awareness of what social media can do to all of us and the ways it can increase stress and loneliness. Isa Watson is CEO and founder of Squad, an audio social app. And she wrote the book, Life Beyond Likes, Logging Off Your Screen and Into Your Life. You tweeted, Washington Mutual failed with $17 billion of withdrawals over 10 days. SVB with $42 billion over two days. Mind-blowing impact of living in the social media and digital age. Mm-hmm. What is the impact you mean there? Yeah, you know, one of the things about social media outside of it being a place where people are, you know, always putting their perfected highlight reels, it is an echo chamber that is easily amplified. And this has happened, not this specifically more, right? But Mm -hmm. like, you know, things have blown up and gone viral in social media. Mm -hmm. This one just happened to result in, you know, $40 billion, you know, being withdrawn. And so I think that there's an element of social media where there is a FOMO component, which is obviously fear of missing out. And that was amplified. And that emotion, I think, accelerated the speed of SCB's collapse. Yeah. I mean, much has been written about the role that certain VCs and I guess you would call them influencers, right? Mm-hmm. On Twitter in particular, the role they played in sort of like fomenting panic and was that intentional. But I have to say that so many of us are on the receiving end of versions of those kinds of tweets every single day that almost seem engineered to drive up our cortisol. And, and actually, as a former political consultant, I can tell you they are. <laughs> yep. A hundred percent. I think it's anxiety inducing and it makes us question our better instincts. And so, for example, how this unfolded for me is that, you know, there is a VC that emailed other portfolio companies on Tuesday saying, take your money out. On Wednesday, it was chatter for me. So I was getting text messages and WhatsApp messages from my fellow founder friends 
a few investors, but not that much. Like, hey, did you hear this? Did you hear this? For me, Thursday was when it kind of blew up on social media. And I think Wednesday, I said to myself, I'm like, you know, I, I think this is like an unnecessary magnitude of reaction. I mean, this can't be a thing that's going to like really happen. And by Thursday night, I started to feel highly anxious because I started to think, am I crazy? Am I the wrong one? Am I the person with the wrong perspective here? (laughs) And I think a lot of people actually felt that way. And and that led to a lot of people actually taking their money out, right? Uh Which led to the regulators taking over on Friday. And I'll tell you more, I was on a flight when it all happened. I was flying back from Dallas to New York and I had just connected to Wi-Fi on the flight. And the FDIC had taken over SVB just 10 minutes prior was the announcement. Did you have money with SVB? I had a ton of money with SVB. I had all my money with SVB. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I run a venture-backed startup called Squad. Our thesis on the world is that we need less broadcast platforms and more ways to kind of deepen it and talk to our friends every day. And so it's an app for your friends to communicate. And we've raised venture funding, millions of dollars from Silicon Valley. And we had all of our money with Silicon Valley. We had our credit cards, our credit lines with Silicon Valley. Everything was centralized there. That's the case for actually the majority of my founder friends, you know, essentially as well. And so I was actually kind of personally impacted by all of this. So you had that window of not knowing if the government was going to step in and if you were going to lose your money. A hundred percent. That weekend, I mean, I would say it was a mix of laying in bed, being sad, rewatching Too Big to Fell. And it was <laughs> kumbaya with founder friends and being like, you know, this may be the end of all of our companies and, you know, what are we going to do? And it was just like, <laughs> when I tell you my level of anxiety was out of control <sighs> and a shared anxiety at this point too, which, you know, when you're already anxious, when you have other anxious people around you that may be anxious about the same thing, that compounds. Oh, yeah. Were you on Twitter too sharing or were you using Twitter more as a news source? I think at this point, I was just kind of using Twitter to catch a pulse on what's going on, except I did tweet something on Saturday because, you know, again, I run a technology company and all of the things that we pay for, the servers every month, our databases, are all the things that make the technology run the payment of those were tied to our SVB credit cards (gasps) and credit lines. And so I started getting payment failure emails on Saturday. And again, keep in mind, Saturday, the the feds don't announce that they're coming in and making depositors whole until 6.15 PM on Sunday. So on Saturday, what am I doing? I'm optimizing for business continuity. Mm. I put everything on my personal credit cards because (gasps) I was like, I did not want to think about Like I have other things to do. I have to open new bank accounts. I have (laughs) to run a business. I have a book tour. I didn't want to think about what's going to go through or what's not. And we still don't have business credit cards yet. So we're still trying to figure out that part of our kind of banking relationship. Oh my gosh. So it sounds like you also may have put your anxiety to use. You were very, very busy. Did you feel like it was productive time or was it just like, I have no choice. This is what I'm going to do. It was really much, I have no choice. This is what I'm going to do. And it's funny because in Squad, the app, you can post kind of status updates and everything in the app, at least after 24 hours. And my message to people in my squad yesterday, I said to them, I was like, honestly, 
I literally hate the fact that I am that person that thrives under pressure and I don't break. Is that a toxic trait? Where did I get that from? Like, you know, and so I think for me, I just, my brain went into, you know, after laying in the bed, eating popcorn and drinking wine and watching Too Big to Fail like three times in a row, my brain went into execution mode. Why did you watch Too Big to Fail? <laughs> because the banking collapse of, you know, 2008, WAMU, uh, Lehman, et cetera, it was the closest thing, the closest scenario I could think of to what we were experiencing today. And I was like, the Fed has to come in. The government has to come in. Biden has to come in. And then here's another thing too. Twitter was unhelpful because you have people with all their hot takes. You know, we talked about this before. People say things deliberately to try to raise your cortisol. I think it was just, I don't know, maybe it was to make me feel better. Maybe it was because it was the closest thing, but a lot of my friends were watching Too Big to Fail. It was actually quite hilarious. That is so interesting. So what were you doing for your career in 2008 when this all happened? That was the year I graduated from college. And I was actually headed to grad school at Cornell. So I was entering a PhD program in biochemistry. And so I knew what was going on, but it really wasn't impacting me in a meaningful way. I knew it was going on, but I didn't really understand it at the time. But you ended up working in finance. Is that right? I ended up working in finance. I had studied chemistry. I was one of the youngest known published chemists in the world at 19 years old for my work on Google Kinase Activators. And up until that, I was a scientist, but I went to MIT to get my MBA with a focus in economics. I always say my journey to Wall Street was one that was pretty accidental. <laughs> I kind of fell into Wall Street working at J.P. Morgan at the time after my MBA. What appealed to you about Wall Street? You know, honestly, when I first went to business school, I thought I was going to go back into pharma because I had also worked at Pfizer as a diabetes chemist, but I thought I was going to go back into the business development side. I've always been interested in the commercial side. And I had this interesting opportunity at JP Morgan. I think, you know, when I went to business school, I did that thing that women do, you know, they self-deprecate and limit our own selves. And so I remember being recruited by a number of the big top consulting firms, top banks. And I would say to myself, you guys know I'm just a chemist, right? Oh God. And like one recruiter <laughs> pulled me aside. She was like, never say that to anybody else. <laughs> You know, she was like, yes, you're a chemist, but that means you're analytical, you're a problem solver, you're a critical thinker, like, you know, let's be serious here. And so, you know, it was an opportunity that presented itself. It was a, in a program that Jamie Dimon had created actually to kind of deploy rising leaders to solve various problems and, and big issues throughout the firm. Wow. So take us a little bit forward. How did your career go for you and, and move us forward five years? My career went from, you know, Wall Street and kind of business strategy to one that was moving from checking the boxes to one that was more purpose-driven, mm. if that makes sense. I was a box checker for the majority of my career more. I was doing the things that people told me I should do and taking the next steps that people told me I should take. And... During my time at J.P. Morgan, my parents sponsored a bus trip for kids to visit colleges. And this particular year, the bus ran off the straight road, flipped over and ejected both of my parents out the front window. And my dad didn't survive that. Hmm. And it was literally the most rock bottom period of my life. 
And it was further exacerbated by the fact that up until then, because I was such a box checker, and not just the fact that I was a box checker, I would brag about all the awards, my 30 and a 30, 40 and a 40, top 100 this, top 100 that on social media. And it was amplified in a big way. And people were like, you go girl. Yes, that's who you're supposed to be. That I had neglected some of those stabilizing relationships in my life and investing in those. You wrote, I talk about my struggles with perfectionism in my career that led me to abandon my in-person life and the foundation of my support. And that when that horrible tragedy happened, you were lonely. Yep. Very much so. I think that I had gotten a little bit addicted to the validation I was getting, but I was getting addicted to the wrong validation. You know, keep in mind, our society is really socialized to be perfect. And we get gold stars in elementary school. And then we get, you know, (laughs) these really ugly plastic trophies in middle school. And then, you know, social media came along and we're like, oh, we can post this to a bunch of strangers we'll never laugh in the same room with. And people really ate into that and validated me as this really awesome, you know, great, inspiring Black woman doing her thing. I mean, there's a counterfactual that would say, I say, you are extraordinary. You have such an incredible brain. You have an incredible drive. Like, we should celebrate you. Like, you're the kind of person that we want to celebrate and lift up. I mean, there's a whole school of feminism, right, that would probably support that argument. That's true. You know, and I have heard that feedback before. They're like, oh, my God, Hampton, Cornell, MIT, JP Morgan, Pfizer, you know, leaving a startup job, et cetera. <laughs> but... It wasn't about the achievements, Maura. It was about my connection or lack of connection with my real life and how I reacted to it, essentially. I get that. So you were really lonely, and I imagine that was a really, really awful time. It was awful. I would not wish it on anyone. But, you know, I will say that it took me months, even longer, to really process what happened. I remember actually getting a call from the state trooper. I was standing at JP Morgan's headquarters on the 32nd floor. And he was like, you know, unfortunately, your father did not survive this accident. I remember thinking, like, I'm really sorry for this person whose dad was in this accident, but this isn't me. This isn't, I think you have the wrong number. So kind of, you know, having to process that for months obviously investing in lots of therapy, (laughs) I found that when I started to talk about my experience with loneliness, my experience with depression, and with, quite frankly, anxiety after that, and the way that I was living and positioning my life, but not really living my life, I found that that was actually more common than I had expected to hear. The world feels so lonely, I think, sometimes because everyone, like I said, is socialized to share the perfections and the things that went well. But sometimes when you when you start to share those things that did not go well, you realize, wow, there's so many other people that are experiencing that, too. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I mean, perfectionism is something that I'm just endlessly fascinated with and the box-checking achievement. Did you ever look at that in your therapy? Like, why was this so important to me or how did this become important to me over time? Yeah, there was a time like when I was at Cornell in a PhD program and I left my PhD program with my master's, took my candidacy exam. And it's something I never talk about because I carried a lot of shame around it. I didn't want people to think that I couldn't do the PhD program because I think when white men leave their PhD programs to go start companies or change roles, they're just like, oh, they have something better to do. But when a woman does it, it's like, oh, she couldn't handle it, right? And so that was the first time in my life that I had split away from doing something that my parents didn't agree with. And so from a perfectionism standpoint, I'm checking all these boxes. Like I used to build computers with my dad at age seven. I got my first job as a research scientist at, in the labs of UNC Chapel Hill doing organic chemistry research at 14. <laughs> and so I was the absolute classic on paper overachiever. But the perfectionism came into play. My parents were absolutely phenomenal people, great human beings. But there's certain things I needed to work on unlearning that I'm still working on today more. And because I remember like I would come home with a 90 on an exam. And the first thing my parents would say is, okay, but where are the two points? <sighs> and so I was like, okay, <laughs> 98 isn't good enough. And I think I've internalized that behavior so much so that I actually end up critiquing myself before I give someone the opportunity to do so. And I'm a competitive skydiver. My skydiving coach said that to me just last month. I was training in the tunnel in North Carolina because we're training to compete in the 2024 U.S. Nationals. And I got out of the tunnel and I said, oh, I did this with my knee. My position here wasn't great. I messed up this formation. He was like, can we get out of the tunnel before you start critiquing yourself? <sighs> And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, well, I'm gonna go get some water. <laughs> so you could hear him. You heard him. Again, it's one of those things where I'm definitely not perfect, but I'm a lot more self-aware. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. And I can kind of self-regulate a bit more, even if I do engage in the behavior. I'm like, hey, I'm doing that thing again. Yep, totally. Wait, okay, let's just talk about the fact that you're competing in nationals for skydiving. What? <laughs> 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 yeah, so I'm a formation skydiver. So I skydive on a four-way team. And I don't think we'll be ready to compete this year, but I 
train with my team, which means that we practice jumping together. Um, we do practice in the tunnel. So the wind tunnel that you've seen, a lot of skydivers use that to practice as well. People say, how did you get into skydiving? And they're just so intrigued by it. But the funny thing is that I actually got into skydiving to help manage my mental health. Wow. Why? What? How? Yes. <laughs> I know it sounds, it sounds crazy, right? But skydiving, I found was the biggest meditative space for me and the biggest mental health reset. You know, I jump out of a plane at 14,000 feet, roughly. I pull my parachute around 4,000 feet to get to the drop zone and land. But that 55 seconds of free fall, you know, you're looking down more at the world and, and it just resets my perspective on things. When you're in free fall, are you hurtling? Does it feel very fast or does it feel slow? It feels like I'm floating in the air. Like if you take a feather, put it by your face and let it fall. I would say that's how it feels. People think that it's like, oh my God, it's like a roller coaster drop. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like that to me. Wow. It's a period though where you have you have control, but you also sort of don't have control. Logically, I, I can understand why someone says it doesn't feel like you have control when you're skydiving. But I would say that quite frankly, it does feel like you have control whether I'm turning or flipping or slowing my fall rate. And you have a parachute, you fly with two parachutes. So I do feel like I'm, I'm in control and I appreciate that I'm focused on just one thing. Mm. Very rarely in our life do we have the luxury anymore because we're so overstimulated by technology and by everything that's going on around us with like an intense amount of energy Rarely do we have the luxury of focusing just on one thing. So this is a perfect setup. I want you to talk about your work, which is actually helping people get back in touch and feel less lonely. A hundred percent. So I built a company, a consumer social platform called Squad. My thesis on the way that social is moving is that we've gotten to a place in society We've gotten to a place of living where in this social media and digital age, we too often conflate consumption with connection. We assume that we're caught up with our friends because we double tap their Instagram profile or their Instagram <laughs> photo or their fabulous, you know, baby photos, but we're not caught up with them. Hmm. The CDC released data in February of 2023 that showed Three in five teenage girls feel persistently lonely, hopeless, and sad. And that is up 60% from 10 years prior. And even the notion of friendship, you look at boomers and you say, do you have friends? Like actually like 90 something percent of boomers say they have a close friend. But when you look at millennials and Gen Z, the people who are most impacted by, you know, the social media era, you know, a third of people will say they don't have a close friend. Yeah, And so with Squad, our thesis was that you get more dopamine hits and stronger dopamine hits by going consistent with a handful of people rather than trying to impress a bunch of people you'll never laugh in the same room with. 
I mean, you're a chemist, so I'm going to assume that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for sure. And so even in the book, I talk a lot about the human capacity for friendship and how we've devalued the term friend. You know, and we turn it into a verb even. Hey, did you friend me? Friend me back, girl. <laughs> you know, a friend is something researchers show that requires unconditional presence, unconditional support and trust. And that's an investment of an effort. And so with Squad, what we did is we built an app where you can invite up to 12 people to be in your squad. And this is where what we're trying to do is reset friendship habits. Oh, wow. How do you do that? Do you coach people? Yeah. So that's the thing. People are like, well, I can talk to my friends in text messages. I'm like, okay, but do you? Mm right? (laughs) 90% of social media users are lurkers. And you find that behavior in group chats, but you also find that when you don't give people something to respond to, the whole notion of reaching out for reaching out sake is not something that people mostly do. And so in Squad, it's a few things. Everything's voice only. We have four key features. But from a daily engagement perspective, one of the things that we have is a daily poll. And it's just a pulse check. You only have two answers, right? So for example, on um, Pi Day, March 14th, mm-hmm. you know, the question was, okay, it's Pi Day. What would you prefer? One answer was, I prefer to find $314 today. <laughs> and the other answer was, I prefer to be 31.4% happier. And you'd be surprised the conversations that starts, right? Like, girl, it's just $314. Like, you don't need that. (laughs) You know, and it's funny, like I have a friend who makes a ton of money and she was like, I want the $314. Oh my God. (laughs) And and I was like, you need to stop. But, um, (laughs) you know, voice messages, asynchronous voice messages back and forth, that's in there. The call experience. So we have an interactive phone call experience um, built with a squad and status updates. But the thing also is that, you know, everything deletes in 24 hours. there's a permanence of the internet that a lot of people feel scared about. Like I I wrote this text message. I don't want a screenshot (laughs) and use it against me later, right? When I'm having a conversation with my friend, I'm fully present with them. You know, it's so funny. I heard Kevin Systrom, who's co-founder of Instagram, be interviewed by Kara Swisher. Mm -hmm. And First of all, he said, this is good for you, that he definitely sees the need and thinks there will be an investment in social networks of friends and family, just like you're doing, intimate spaces. And he said also that people's desire to create their grid as something that is almost like a, almost like a resume, you know, a visual communication of themselves at their best prevents a lot of real human connection. It really does because it makes us walk around like we have a veil on, Mm. right? We want to be seen as this thing, but I can't see you. I can't see you in front of all the perfected layers that you've put out there. And if you really want to connect with someone like for real, for real, you have to like take off your layers and they have to take off theirs because my perfected self can't connect with your perfected self. What have you done as a practice to reduce your loneliness and increase your connection? This might sound a little bit mean, but when I turned 30, I did a spring cleaning of my friendships. (laughs) I I realized, Maura, I was running around 
in my 20s like a chicken with his head cut off going to this happy hour in New York and that happy hour and this thing and that thing and just lacking complete intentionality around the way I was spending my time because I was trying to optimize for doing the most that I could. And, you know, I had 552 friends, you know, I made that up, right? But like, I'm pretty sure 552 people have at some point called me their friend, right? And I realized I was exhausted and I wasn't being replenished. So for me, what I did is I said, I'm going to invest in a handful of friendships. Mm. You know, I'm going to invest in, let's call it five. These are the five people that I talk to every day. And funny enough, as a user of squad, you can have up to 12 people in your squad. Though our most active users have five to six people in their squad. That makes sense. Yeah. You can't talk to more than five or six people every day. And I said, I'm going to invest in those relationships. So for example, one of those relationships is with my college best friend and she has a daughter and that's my goddaughter. I make sure I go down and see her in Texas at least twice a year. That's an investment. That's a real investment. It really is. But when I tell you that operating with a handful of high quality friends over the quantity game, I am so much happier. I live so much more joyfully every day. I love that so much. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I actually, I posted this on Instagram and it got a big response because I realized a few months ago that I was super lonely, even though I literally never have a minute to myself ever. Mm-hmm. I have three children. I have a lovely husband. <laughs> I have four animals. Like I'm never alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm lonely because that friend connection that I loved so much giggling with your girlfriends, I don't, you, you know, I've really missed out on that. And um, I mean, obviously. So many studies, the big Harvard study, show that that is just so key to your mental health. It really is. And I tell people all the time, and I talk about this in the book even, you know, in Life Beyond Likes, if we had just a little bit more intentionality with what I call a friendship calendar or a friendship schedule, you know, that we have with our work calendars, right? Because we got the committee meetings, the board meetings, the prep for the board meetings and the post meeting for the meetings. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is that if we took just one block of time each week, let's call it Thursday evenings, or let's say Saturday morning brunches, and we say, that's my friendship time, block that out. And then just fill it in every week with a different person. I found that when I did that, I was like, wow, I do have friend time. I just have to be more intentional with incorporating it. And one of my best friends, she, you know, her third kid took her out. You know, she just was like, I don't know. It seems like an inflection between two kids and three kids. Like the third kid is like, it's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have experience with that, but this is, I'm just saying for my friends that went from two to three, I told her this as well, because she was just struggling and now she does it. And she's like, wow, I'm actually happier. Mm, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Maura. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, 
or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.